0: The people of God had been destroyed by their own sin, taken into exile into Babylon. There was no temple, no sacrifices, no access to God. But as the people are rescued from exile, we have new hope here in the book of Ezra. A new exodus brings the return of the people from exile, a return to the temple. God is reclaiming the land, reclaiming his people. God's Purposes still stand. God proves himself faithful. And so we, hearing God's word, can claim his promises. And so listen as I read Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Jazadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, And his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles, with a required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival of the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josedek, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord, Jeshua and his sons and brothers, and Kadmiel and his sons, the descendants of Hadaviah, and the sons of Hanadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments, and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise. And the noise was heard far away. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads as we pray, as we ask God to make himself known to us. Our Father, you are the God of truth who speaks to us, and so I pray that we who who follow after Jesus, who acknowledge you to be Savior and Lord, that we would be humbled before your word today, that we would be willing to hear the truth you have to announce to us, Lord, that even as our sin is exposed, we would would turn in hope to Jesus Christ. Father, for those that come feeling the heavy weight of their sin, I pray that they would find relief in the forgiveness that is offered through trust in Jesus. Lord, for those that come with doubts, I pray that they would find hope in the truth of Scripture announced to us today. Lord, we rejoice in the way that your gospel transforms lives. We thank you for the, the ministry and mission we as a church have of making this good news known. Lord, we pray this morning for the ministry of Hope Presbyterian Church just across the state line in Garnet Valley. Lord, this new church plant led by Will Stern. Lord, we pray that you would bless and strengthen that church. Lord, use Pastor Mike, our associate pastor, to make your word known today as he fills that pulpit. Lord, strengthen the gospel in that church so that they would, would be eager and, and excited to tell their neighbors about Jesus. Lord, give us those opportunities this week to be those who who share the name of Jesus, who rejoice in his goodness to us. Father, he is everything that we need. He is our hope and our salvation. And so we come praying today in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Las Vegas isn't known for its moral purity. So perhaps it's not surprising that a Las Vegas casino invited people to win a free room by tweeting out a sin with the hashtag MGM Sin. They were asking people to to publicly write down something terrible that they've done in order to win a free hotel room. They titled their marketing campaign, Get Rewarded for Your Sins. They even invited people to go in and comment and vote on whether or not the sins that had been revealed were sins that should be forgiven or not. Now, I doubt that the, the, the casino really thought it was in a position to offer forgiveness. I mean, after all, this is the city that even during this time period was using that great slogan, telling guests, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. See, their general approach to sin has typically been, hey, no big deal. You're just blowing off steam. It's just a little bit of fun. And, and, and really, lest you think that I'm picking on marketers in Las Vegas— they're really just reflecting what our own hearts want. Because we might be tempted, like the slogans, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, to just live our lives that way. That's how we are tempted to deal with our own sin. It's, it's no big deal. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I was just having a little bit of fun after all. I mean, everybody should have a little bit of fun. And so we minimize our own sin. We pretend like it's, it's not a big deal. Or maybe we think we could do something to atone for our own sin. We could deal with it. Now, we might not think that, that a, a public announcement of our sin on Twitter is a solution, but we do sometimes play that kind of game where we, where we acknowledge we have done something, but we don't admit it was wrong. We sort of go to the other person, and, and, and without apologizing, sort of explain all of the circumstances and the scenarios and the things which, which, which led us to that decision without ever saying we're sorry, as if just saying it out publicly, like tweeting it on, online, would be enough to deal with our own sin. Or maybe we're, we're actually people that would, would rebel against these kind of, of hashtags, and we would think of ourselves as pretty good, and yet if I were to ask people around you, they would say, well... Yeah, she thinks she's pretty good, but but have you ever noticed that everybody walks on eggshells around her? Nobody ever points out any flaws? Or maybe they, they would describe you in this way of, Well, of of course we pretend that everything's all right, because if you say anything wrong, he'll fly off the handle. His anger is is barely beneath the surface. And sometimes in those scenarios, what are we doing? We're hiding our own sin, we're pushing it down, and then we're really good at identifying the sin in other people. That's why they have to walk on eggshells around us, because we will yell at them rather quickly for their own failures. See, we deny our own sin. We pretend like it's not a big deal. We try and justify ourselves. We seek ways, maybe even religious ways, maybe even showing up on a beautiful Sunday morning to church. I mean, I could think of nicer things you could be doing than listening to someone tell you you are a sinner. See, when we come to Ezra chapter 3, the sin of God's people is evident. I mean, this chapter is really a historical account of the rebuilding of the altar, the place of physical sacrifice of animals. And it's the historical account of the rebuilding of the foundation of the temple, the building in which the sacrifices were brought, in which God himself dwelled. See, the sin of the people of God is, is before them, but so is the solution to their sin. And so let's, let's look at it. Look back at verse 1 with me. Now, your, your calendar of, of Israelite holidays might not be real strong, and so you may have just skipped over this note there in, in verse 1. But the, the designation of the, when the seventh month came is an important designation. Because the seventh month on the calendar year, the month which overlaps, because it's a lunar calendar, overlaps our months of September and October, that month is perhaps the most sacred on the entire Old Testament calendar. Because it's the, it's the time on, on the first day of the seventh month, it's the feast of the trumpets, it's a day of rest. Even if it doesn't fall on a Sabbath, you treat it as if it were a Sabbath. And the, the day ends with a, with a proclamation of, of the trumpets giving praise to God. And then you move through the seventh month to the tenth day, which is the Day of Atonement, that pivotal day on the calendar in which the high priest enters the Holy of Holies. And then it's not even a week before you're, you're to the, the seven days or the eight days of the Feast of the Tabernacles. We read about that in verse 4. When they, in accordance with what was written, celebrated this great feast. I mean, this seventh month is the most wonderful time of the year. I mean, the excitement is the excitement that would build at at Christmas of getting to celebrate the the joyous hope of the gospel. And these celebrations, particularly the Feast of Tabernacles, which we're told they celebrate according to to all of the commands of God, bringing all of the, the burnt offerings that were required. This Feast of Tabernacles is, a, is, a, is an eight-day celebration, a week-long celebration in which the people of God are reminded that God is a rescuing God because a tabernacle is a little temporary shelter that you would make. And, and we get the instructions back in the book of Leviticus. You can flip to Le- Leviticus 23 if you'd like to, to follow along or you can just listen it's actually in the book of Exodus, it's in Leviticus, it's repeated in Numbers and Deuteronomy because these feasts, these festivals are essential to the pattern of the worship for God's people. And so just as God rescued his people from Egypt and brought them out of, of physical dwellings, brick or stone dwellings or, or mud dwellings, they're now out in the wilderness having to sleep under a booth, a tabernacle, a temporary shelter. And so every year they're meant to to repeat this pattern. Leviticus 23, verse 39 tells us, so beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month. All right, that's the language Ezra is capturing. We are in the seventh month. We are at the 15th day. After you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest. And then the eighth day is also a day of rest. On the first day, you're to take choice fruit from the trees, palm fronds, leafy branches, and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths, so your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. See, the excitement of what's taking place in Ezra chapter 3 is that finally, again, we can celebrate the festival. We are here. There is an altar to bring sacrifices to. I mean, imagine the scene. It's, it's as if you have, you have heard stories of Christmas celebrations, but you've never celebrated. Your parents never celebrated Christmas, but your grandparents, they, they share the stories of, of way back when. Having never been, been to an Easter worship service, you, you know what a, what a pivotal thing that would be in the pattern of the church's life, and yet you think, I've never had the privilege of lifting a song of praise to God in Easter worship. And so the people here in the seventh month, finally, after decades of exile, return and build an altar to the Lord. They rebuild this physical stone altar so that they can bring animals to sacrifice perfect pure animals the shedding of blood to to be a picture for them of what will be required to bring forgiveness of sins the repeated shedding of blood the the language here that they that they brought all of the all of the burnt offerings that were were required the number of burnt offerings and when you read through in in deuteronomy and numbers you you see the the vast amount of blood that had to be spilled Because the people's sin is great. It's it's clear to them how big their sin is. It's big enough that God sent them into exile, removed them from the temple, removed his presence from them, removed the possibility of sacrifice for them. And so now they have the privilege of bringing sacrifices to God again. But yet the question still lingers. How will you deal with your sins? What will you do to solve your problem? Will you just pretend it's not a big deal? Sort of gloss it over, I'm just human after all. Will you compare yourself to others and say, well, you know, I'm better than she is. At least I don't do what he has done. Or will you find ways in the the sorrow and despair of your own sin to to self-medicate? to find ways to escape through alcohol or drugs or through, through living a, a life that Las Vegas says it should be yours. And so you just take it and, and hope that the pleasure will, will numb the pain of your sin. So the answer of the Bible is that we have to acknowledge our sin and turn back to God to find hope. And all of the language here of this, this great feast of the tabernacles points us to God's great provision. It's a reminder for them to look back that every year they are supposed to to sleep in the discomfort out under these temporary booths, to be reminded that that they were slaves, but God rescued them. And yet it also points us forward, forward to the hope of God's presence among us, that God would tabernacle with us. And so I want you to to jump with me to, to the book of John. So put a bookmark or keep your finger here in Ezra, but, but go with me way to the, to the New Testament. We're going to jump 500 years now in time to the, the time of Jesus' ministry, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, when we find John writing the true story of Jesus' ministry, introducing the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, John is kind enough to not merely give us a vague reference to the seventh month but he writes knowing that, that we who never celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles would be reading it, and so he just tells us directly, this is what's happening now. And so in John 7, 2, chapter 7, verse 2, we're, we're with Jesus. We're told that when the, when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. It's the time for tabernacles, and so what does a, a good Jew ha- have to do? What's required of him? This is one of those three uh, festivals each year that requires a journey, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so Jesus, he delays initially here at the beginning of chapter 7, he, but he goes. He delays because he knows that, that his fame, his reputation, has caused the religious leaders to decide he's better off dead. But the ministry of Jesus won't won't cower to the, the threats of those around him. And so when we jump to verse 14 of John chapter 7, we find Jesus now teaching publicly. John seven fourteen. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And so Jesus, now standing in the the feast of the tabernacles, is telling them that God himself sent him. And remember the language from the beginning of John's gospel, that Jesus tabernacled among us. More than giving us a a stick and leaf structure to, to lay under, God himself took on human flesh. Jesus is the Son of God, standing at the feast, telling them he has been sent by God. Now the people recognize who he is. So jump with me to verse 25 of John 7. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Verse 26, here he is speaking publicly and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from and when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own. But he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on Jesus because his time had not yet come. Jesus, standing in the temple courts, announces that he has come from God, not merely from from Galilee, not merely from Nazareth, but he is the one who has come directly from God. And then during this feast in which the temple, in which the, the priest in the temple would, would bring water from the springs into the temple courts, Jesus, in verse 37, uses the imagery of this feast to stand and declare himself to be the one who brings living water. Look at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then as the, 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 the feast continues, Jesus, seeing the, 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 the lights in the city light up the temple courts, says in chapter 8, here at the Feast of Tabernacles, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, for the people at the time of, of Ezra chapter 3, they were looking back to the promise that God, or the, to the provision God had provided for the people during the time of the Exodus. Their Feast of Tabernacles was, was looking to God's provision. And Jesus now stands and announces to all Israel that which you were longing for, God's presence among you, I am here. That which you were hoping for, the, the, the water that you need to quench your life, the light of truth is, is now here. Jesus announces that He is the hope, the feast of the Feast of the Tabernacles. And so when we ask that question, what are you going to do about your sin? Your only answer can be turn to Jesus. He is the great solution. He is the one who brings us the hope of God, the presence of God. He, the scriptures tell us, is the true high priest, the great king, the promised Messiah, the sacrifice himself. And yet even here in Ezra chapter 3, we we realize that that just having the altar rebuilt is not enough. Because yes, they could celebrate, verse 6 tells us, on the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of the Trumpets. They could celebrate on the the 15th day of the month, the Feast of of Tabernacles. But the the celebration on the 10th day of that seventh month is a celebration that can't take place. Because the Day of Atonement requires the Holy of Holies. That's that one day a year when when the priest could enter the Holy of Holies. And so the sacrifices are incomplete. Their standing before God is is not fixed. And so we're told that the work continues in verse 7. They bring from the the lands of Sidon and Tyre the resources that they need. And then look at verse 8. We get another time reference, another calendar reference here. In the second month of the second year after their arrival. And so we're being told, okay, it's the second year now, but it's the second month. Well, why is that significant? Well, it's because if you think back to the story of, of the building of the first temple, the timeline we're given is that it was during the second month that Solomon began the work of building the temple. And so this, just as the, the rebuilding of the altar and the, the Feast of the Tabernacles had looked back To the the time of the Exodus. So now the rebuilding of the temple, the start of the the foundation work, is looking back to the time of of Solomon, the great king, the son of David, the one who built God's temple. And then the the names that are there in verse 8 remind us of God's great promises. We're introduced again to to men whose names you may remember from from chapter 2. We are introduced to Zerubbabel, he is the Davidic heir the one who will reign on David's throne. God's promises to David have not disappeared. And then we're introduced in verse 8 to Jeshua. It is his grandfather who was the high priest, the last high priest to enter the Holy of Holies. God has provided a king. God has provided the high priest for his people. And so they begin the work of rebuilding now God's temple. They had the altar built, but now they have to build the temple itself. And so they begin this work. They rebuild the foundation of, of this temple. Okay, now, now there's a detail that, that if I gave you a little bit of time to work it out, it might raise a question for you. All right, But I'm just going to jump you ahead to the question. Because there's a question that, that, that as scholars read through the book of Ezra, or somebody who, who doubts the truthfulness of, of God's word reads through this, when, when introduced to Zerubbabel, they say, oh, here's a problem because they want to know what happened to Sheshbazar. Now, I know that's a question you were expecting to answer. Yeah, that's the first question that was right at the front of your mind. What is it that happened to Sheshbazar? Now, now you're thinking, wait, wait, which one's Sheshbazar? And I'm not sure Kevin's saying that name correctly. All right, if we go back to chapter 1, the one who is called the prince of Judah, the one who is given the authority by Cyrus, the king of Persia, is not Zerubbabel— it's Shesh Bazar. And so, critics of the Bible read through this, and they try and match the, the timeline here of the early chapters of Ezra with the, the ministry of, of Daniel, still back in, in Babylon and Persia. They try and match it with the, the later work of rebuilding the temple by, by Nehemiah, the which will come, but also Haggai and Zechariah. And so they say, well, see, here's a problem. It, and, and, and the problem is, you introduce a character in chapter 1, gave him the credit, Sheshbazar, and then by the time you got to chapter 3, because you made up this whole story, you've forgotten who it was, and so you've introduced a new character to the story. All right, now, the smaller question of what happened to Sheshbazar is his authority, if Zerubbabel works under the authority of Sheshbazar, but he is the one doing the main work, then it's totally appropriate to say Zerubbabel helped rebuild the temple. Because delegated authority is still true authority. Now, there are times that the, that the governor has done nothing, but it's his law. It's given, he's given credit for it, even though it was his underlings that did all of the work. And so maybe that's all that's happening here. But even more than that, there's a clear theological reason that the writer of the book of Ezra would emphasize Zerubbabel and ignore Sheshbazar. His name doesn't matter anymore. We only needed to know who he was because that's who Cyrus first sent. He has no more point in the story, though. He's, a, he's perhaps a, a, a Persian official. Who do we really need? We need a son of David to come back and to be the one who will become the one appointed at, in authority. And so, so Zerubbabel is, we're given his name for theological reasons. It, it, so Sheshbazar might still be there. He might still be in charge. It it does nothing to the history of this account to to have skipped his name. Now, you might think, well, Kevin, you picked a really easy problem to solve. Because maybe your attitude toward the Scriptures is, is, I just don't believe any of this nonsense. And, And honestly, this isn't the hardest part of the Bible to believe. Lists of rebuilding a temple? I mean, temples were built all over the ancient world. We don't doubt that this temple existed. You can go and see some of the stones still there today. See, so really, the, the harder things to believe are the, what we read in John chapter 7. That Jesus is the true Son of God in the flesh here in our presence, the miraculous work of God. But, but see, the reason I bring up this, this, this small question about Sheshbazar and Zerubbabel is because it really reveals our attitudes towards Scripture. As believers, as those who have put our trust in God, we should submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word. Not merely flipping through it just to get on to the next story, but but recognizing that this is God's revealed truth for us. And if you have questions about that, if you if you doubt this, then then really the question that's before you is is what authority are you trusting? Who are you believing? What if God loved us enough to make Himself known, to, to to come and dwell with us? What if God spoke to us? Wouldn't we want to listen to what He says? And when in a posture that looks for an easy solution, that, well, Sheshbazar delegated authority to Zerubbabel, and so we don't need to keep saying Sheshbazar over and over again. But say that five times fast as a little test. See, really, it's a posture of submission to the authority of God's word. And so as the temple is rebuilt, the people see the faithfulness of God, They rejoice in what they're seeing take place. The promises spoken by the prophets that God would bring his people back, that the temple would be restored, that God would dwell among his people, they're seeing it take place. So that once the the foundations are laid and the priests are there ready to rejoice, they lead the people of God, just as had been done by David, king of Israel. And so look at verse 11 back in Ezra chapter 3. With praise and thanksgiving, the people sang to the Lord, he is good, his love is good. To Israel endures forever. I mean, that phrase, a simple phrase, probably not capturing the whole of the song, but just giving us the theme of what they were singing about. That's a phrase that's used throughout the Psalms, it, as it's a repeated refrain in the, in the praise of God's people. It's the kind of phrase that you and I continue to repeat today God is good, His love endures forever. It's a picture of God's faithfulness. And you see the, the pattern here in Ezra chapter 3. When we see the rebuilding of the temple in the seventh month and now the laying of the foundation and the people gathered in worship, you see what worship is meant to do for us. And so perhaps it, it's easy for me to say because you're already here, but that's why the pattern of gathering in worship, in public worship, in corporate worship with others is necessary for our, our lives as Christians. Because it's, it, it's, it's not merely to sort of reset yourself for the next week, although that can be one of the, the effects that it, that it reorients you to the truth of God's Word. It's, it's the pattern that when we gather with the people of God, what do we do? We see our sin in the sacrifices that have been altered, offered. And so we need that reminder at the altar of the Lord that Jesus the Savior gave himself for us. We need the reminder of the people of God singing when we doubt these words to be true, that God's love endures forever. We need the, the picture of our sinfulness and the picture of God's faithfulness we need that to echo through our lives, not merely when it feels convenient to us, but even on days when it's hard to drag ourselves out of bed, even on days when it's, when it's hard to wrangle the kids together, even on days when it seems like everything is conspiring to keep us away, we need that pattern of gathering in worship so that we can be used by God to sing the song of praise that shows someone else the faithfulness of God. So that when we sing, His love endures forever. People that have prayed with us and for us see the truth of that, that they hear it in our lives. And yet, even here, in this moment of great thanksgiving, this moment of rejoicing, the the, the shouts of joy are mingled with the the tears of the people. The overwhelming attitude is is joy at the faithfulness of God, but, but verse 12 tells us that many of the older priests and Levites and family heads those who had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. See, and why? I mean, maybe it's that they see already that, that even without the temple being built, that this, this new temple will be much less impressive than the one that Solomon built. But it's, it's just stones here at, the, at this point point. And yes, maybe it's that there were smaller stones being used, but I don't think it's really a story of construction. I don't think their weeping is merely that the job doesn't seem to be as being well done as they expected. It's that they realize that there is something still missing. Yes, the temple itself is missing. But even when we go back to chapter 1 and read the inventory of all that was brought to be put back into the temple, the gold and the silver, there is something significant missing. Something so important that even Indiana Jones will go looking for it. The Ark of God's Covenant, it's not been mentioned. Maybe it's lost. Maybe that day of atonement when the priest would go in and with the sacrifices sprinkle the blood on the, on the footstool of God, on the place between the angels, those golden angels carved into the Ark of the Covenant where God in his glory dwelt. Maybe they're realizing... We're still missing something. See, they weep because they see the reality of their own sin and they see the provisional nature of what's being built before them. Even the grandeur of Solomon's temple can be knocked down by an army. We need something more. It's as if they're in their memories holding up a a picture to see what was there before. Have Have you ever seen those? where a, a photographer takes a, a picture and then goes to the historic site and in one hand holds the black and white image and then takes a picture of it lined up. Jason Powell, he's a, a photographer, and he invited other photographers to sort of join him in this challenge to go to the archives of the Library of Congress and take some of the most famous moments in American history, some of the most famous places, and then go to them. And since he was in Texas, he, he, he went to the Alamo, and he said part of the fun was, was taking this black and white photo and trying to figure out where was the photographer like, where was the photographer standing and sort of jostling among the, the tourists? But but the picture then is a black and white image held up against the, the new full color scene that's right before him. And so as you look at the picture, you see both the, the old image and the new juxtaposed together. And it's as if the, the older people, those who remembered seeing the temple, can now see the the old black and white image. And they... And, and they're sad at what has been lost. And that's actually how, how Jason Powell, the photographer, explains it. He says, he says I'm the nostalgic type. The, the reason I go out and do this is because when I look at an old photograph, I just think to myself, man, I wish I had been there. And yet the people of God, weeping, because they long for what had been, not for, not for nostalgia's sake, but for what it meant to have a temple there, what it meant to have the presence of God among them. See, as we might be tempted to, to to weep for the nostalgia of the past, but what we really need is the God who kept His promises. See, Ezra lets us hold up the photograph to see the former glory of this temple, but you and I are never meant to merely see that as the full picture. That Old Testament temple was, was always meant to be a picture through which we looked to see the promise of God coming. We were meant to look through the Feast of the Tabernacles and see the, the, the King of the Feast, Jesus himself, who offers us eternal life. We were meant to look at the temple and see that as a picture of God's heavenly dwelling, to see it as a picture of a, of a perfect relationship with God. And so when we hold up the picture, we don't merely long for the nostalgia of the past, you need to see yourself in the picture. I mean, one of, the, one, of the most, one, one of the most shocking details when you look at some of these old pictures, I mean, the, the roof lines match up. The buildings, many of these historic buildings look very much the same. But it's the people in the pictures, dressed from another era. Sometimes they're traumatic scenes held up against the calm, serene, now national parks. See, when you and I hold up the the image of God's Word, we need to see ourselves in this story. As those who have rebelled against God, as those who are guilty of sin, as those who have been provided for by God Himself. See, when we turn to read the Word of God, we are confronted with our own sin. And yet God proves Himself faithful. Faithful. He is good. His love endures forever. So when we hold up the image and we see ourselves, we find ourselves guilty of sin, in need of forgiveness. And yet God has provided all we need. And so today, put your hope in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, I ask that that having heard your word, even thinking through these historic accounts, Lord, we would see the way that you are actively at work in our midst today. We would look back to the promises that we have seen fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus, our Savior, and we would, we would come by faith in Jesus, confessing our sins, putting our trust in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, for those that, that wrestle with questions and doubts today, Lord, I pray that they would find answers in your word. Lord, for those of us tempted to, to ignore our sin or, 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 or pass it over too quickly, Lord, let us feel the weight of our sin, and yet in, in seeking forgiveness, find that Jesus, our Savior, takes our sin from us. Lord, let us rejoice in the good news that Jesus is the Savior who rescues us. Let us announce this good news, we pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen.